0: Let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study. It's been said that it's always darkest before the dawn, and boy, was that ever true of Good Friday. There was Jesus, our Savior, and all his good promises languishing in death upon a Roman cross. Dark days, indeed. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but there's a curious verse, and John's gospel that tells us that while they were at the table, Jesus mentioned that somebody would betray him. John asked who that would be, and Jesus pointed out it would be the one to whom he gave a piece of bread, and he handed it to Judas. And here's what John writes. He says in John 13, after Judas received the piece of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Oh, that's a deep and profound statement. He wasn't telling you, oh, by the way, it was evening. We already knew that. But when the Son of God, the light of the world, is on his way to being snuffed out, betrayed to the hands of evil men, it's a dark time indeed. It reminds me of the verse where the one of the plagues was... Uh, Darkness, but it says there in Exodus chapter 10, it wasn't an ordinary kind of darkness. It was a darkness that could be felt. And that's the kind of darkness that came over the whole earth there from 12 noon till 3 p.m. on Good Friday. And so the author of life, hanging on a cross, languishing in death, devastated, broken-hearted disciples who are probably wondering. He said he was the bread of heaven, that if we ate of that bread, he would raise us up on our last day. But how is he going to do that if he can't raise himself up on his last day? And so his lifeless body, as he breathes his last, is taken down and sealed away in a dark tomb. Heavy stone rolled over the entrance with the governor's seal. Armed guards standing watch. Their every reason to live was locked away in darkness behind that immovable stone. And what's amazing is that not one of his disciples, not even the nearest and dearest, ever expected to see him again. Even though the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that he'd rise from the dead, even though Jesus said time after time that he would be executed and then on the third day rise again. And yet none of them uh, believed it. Faith often gets toppled over by what we see and feel in the moment, especially if it's trying and troublesome. One writer said, to embrace fear, we must let go of faith. And that's what's going on here. We're going to see that here in Luke chapter 24. Not even his closest disciples, as I said, they are blinded by their fears and doubts. And like these two Disciples that Jesus is going to come upon on Resurrection Sunday afternoon, no less. They're walking home from the holiday of Passover to a famous city called Emmaus, having a big pity party for themselves without a flicker of faith in their disillusioned hearts. We're going to take a look at that story for our reflection this morning. Check it out. Let's begin at verse 13. Now, that same day, Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, he asked them, What is it that you're discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, kind of shocked, it sounds, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on, that doesn't know the things that have happened here in these last days? Well, let's pause there. We'll walk through the story. We'll walk with them all the way to Emmaus, well-known, well-loved incident. Only seven short miles from Jerusalem, Emmaus means um, hot springs, which is kind of ironic because there are two disciples from hot springs with very cold hearts concerning faith, that is. And so that's about to change as they encounter Jesus. And so we're going to pull up alongside, walk with them, see what we can observe as they go from utter despair to unspeakable joy, from dismal doubts to fearless faith. And so it's really perfect timing to be in this passage, Resurrection Sunday. We couldn't land on a better Sunday than this, right? So yeah, some of the Lord's disciples... Both then and now, through the trauma of trials and tribulation, they lose their way, their perspective gets off, and their faith gives way to fear. So if that's the case for you or somebody you know this morning, and you find your faith dwindling and your fears uh, prevailing, Then the same remedy that restores these downcast disciples will restore anyone else who's suffering at the hands of fears and doubts. And so just apply these simple truths that we learn in this wonderful passage. And the clouds are going to part, and the sun is going to come shining through once again. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And so... What you have before you, verses 13 through 18, note takers, downcast disciples. And it's really too bad because they don't need to be, and that's going to be kind of Jesus' point to them, really. Yeah, their faces betray the condition of their souls, for sure. There's a scene in Anne of Green Gables where Anne is having a meltdown about something as usual. She's going up the stairs, and she puts her hand over her forehead, and she says, Oh, Marilla, her adoptive mom, I'm in the depths of despair. And Marilla just rolls her eyes and quips back at her and says, Oh, Anne, to despair is to turn your back on God. And so there was no reason for anybody who had the Holy Spirit, who had uh, Christ in their life, to despair in that way. So it was a long road uh, home. Seven miles is long when you have a heavy heart. It kind of slows life down. Who are these two? Well, we get a name of one, Cleopas. Uh, We'll just call him Cleo right? Since I don't know how to pronounce Cleopas. Uh, so verse 18, Cleo means glory to the Father, but at the moment, not so much. And who's the other one? Well, scholars say that it may be his wife. It seems like he was traveling uh, home from Passover holiday in Jerusalem with his wife, who was also a disciple. And so uh, Jesus had a wider circle of disciples. You remember, uh, not just the 12, but in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples. And so these two are part of that wider group, it seems. And so uh, they had spent the Passover holiday along with 2 million, Josephus says, other uh, worshipers during the the festive Passover uh, holiday there in Jerusalem. All of them gathered together to commemorate Exodus chapter 12 where where death came and passed over because they took the blood of a lamb and they put it on the doorpost and death came calling but passed over when it recognized, oh, there's been a death already. And so uh, they all (laughs) missed out on the significance of Jesus, the self-proclaimed Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, being slain on Passover there. And so they went to Passover. They were all expecting Jesus and hailing him as king to come the way he's coming the second time to exalt Israel and his people, to set them free and make Israel the superpower of the kingdom to come, which is prophesied. And so that's not going to happen for anybody unless you participate in the first coming, the sacrifice for sins. And so they had a lot to talk about on that long way home, uh, the betrayal of Judas and his subsequent suicide Pilate and Herod's weakness. The sun stopped shining, as I've mentioned. That's something to be talking about. There were multiple earthquakes. There was a rumor that Christ had uh, been raised from the dead and that the, 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 the temple curtain had been torn in two. And there was another rumor that there was an empty tomb. And so they had all of these things to be talking about. And as they're discussing these things, Jesus pulls up alongside, in step with them, in stride with them. And uh, they're kept from recognizing that it's the risen Lord. And so that's what focusing on your fears and doubts will do. It'll dim your faith. You can't see Christ if you're all wrapped up panicking and doubting, right? And so now I want you to see something that's amazing. There's an emphasis here, repetition, making a point. Uh, they were talking with each other. That's one. And as they talked, two, they discussed, three, these things, and then Jesus says, What are you discussing? The verbs are different, they're intense, and here's what's going on. Jesus, when he says, What are you discussing? He's really not interested in the content, but what kind of conversation? Well, uh, you know, what, what, what's the reason for your concern? In other words, this repetition is giving this kind of picture a frenzied exchange unbecoming of believers. Not a lot of thinking, a lot of emoting, a lot of reacting, a lot of runaway train kind of thing, the kind of thing that we do when we're under stress. Flying off the handle, really talking a mile a minute, blowing off steam, having just an exasperating conversation. That's all over the place. And that conversation was going everywhere except the one place it needed to go. On the truth, on the scriptures, on the hope, on the prophecies that Jesus said that he would rise on the third day. One writer put it this way. Is this not the same condition our risen Lord can find some of his disciples today Disciples under trying circumstances, chattering away about all the what-ifs, bouncing all over the place, concentrating on all the fearful negatives, talking up a storm without the slightest regard for the word of God and without the slightest awareness of the nearness of his presence as he walks right beside us, step by step, stride for stride. What if, you know, you and another disciple went for a walk, you know, a social distance walk around a lake that happened to be open and, and you're, you're taking a walk and then Jesus pulls up alongside and he wants to listen to your conversation. And it's all about all the terrible death statistics, The gloom and the doom reports and all the what ifs about future mandates and all the ways that the masks don't really work and the crazy governor and the crazy, crazy president and the shortage of this and the shortage of that and the lines at this store and the lines at that and the empty shelves and the toilet paper. (laughs) And Jesus would say, what kind of discussion are you having And the answer is the wrong kind for believers. It's exactly what he's asking them. What kind of talk is this coming out of believers' mouths? And so I think we have to answer that question too. Notice the description they're so shocked that he would ask, like, what, what's riling you guys up? And they just stop and they stare and crestfallen faces. Their countenances are dark and dismal, dull eyes and hollow expressions. Now, Psalm 19 says, the word of the Lord gives radiant light to our eyes. But the word of the Lord is far from their thinking and their conversation. So no wonder their faces are fallen. And so uh, Cleo answers back a little tongue-in-cheek to the Lord, if only he knew, to whom he was addressing. He says, are you the only one on the planet? that's clueless right now? Really? You know, are you from outer space? Don't you watch cable news, man? You know, if he said, are you from outer space? Jesus might say, yeah, something like that. And so the next paragraph we're going to take a look at now, verses 19 and following. Jesus is the great physician, so he's going to draw out of them some of this poisonous doubt. And so let's take a look at those verses So he says, what things, he asked? Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Now they're speaking to Jesus. This is unbelievable. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And more than that, It's the third day since all this took place. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. Go figure. (laughs) They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. All right, so we're moving from the disciples being disheartened to a faith discarded. And if it's one thing that makes your faith useless is to walk by sight, And not by faith, just the opposite of what we're told to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, sometimes we get it backwards. Uh, One writer put it this way, not to utilize your faith in times of difficulty is to face your challenge with the same resources as an atheist, So you don't want to discard your faith, especially in times of crisis, but that's where it usually happens. Jesus invites them now to unburden themselves. He indulges them a little bit. He says, you know, tell me all about it, friends. Fill me in. I'm sure I missed something along the way, or I'd be, up as, I'd be as upset as you are. So, so just tell me what's going on. So if we rephrased and got to the bottom of the meaning of what Cleo is really saying, here's what it would sound like maybe to Jesus. Well, it's about you, Jesus, the Messiah, and all, and how you let us all down, how you didn't meet any of our expectations, you didn't do what we expected you to do, and how the bad guys are winning, and you are MIA. We were hoping you'd turn this thing around for Israel and for us, but sadly, that doesn't seem to be the case. What they actually say, and you can see it in your verses, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. No problem with the miraculous power. Man, we could tell you stories. Uh, No problem with the life-changing words of authority, the truth that set our hearts free. No problem with the majestic unparalleled claims. No argument there. Check, check, check. He claimed to be equal to God in every way. Well, The problem is he seems to be working in ways that we didn't expect. And so the bad guys got a hold of him. Verse 20, ruined everything and put all that goodness to an abrupt end. They killed him and hung him on a cross. End of story. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel, which means to buy back, right? What they're saying by that is saying to fulfill all of the dozens of prophecies in God's word about exalting the nation in the millennial kingdom. You can check out Isaiah 60, the opening verses there for just one of those. And so really the big point, here's what they're saying. As I kind of alluded to it, since things are turning out differently than we imagined and we don't like it, it, how it's going, then we're just going to just kind of check out. We're going to stop believing because the story didn't go as we wanted it to. There's a lot of God's people whose stories right now are not going the way they had hoped, expected, or desired. So I don't know if you know anybody who's tempted to think like this, The remedy, of course, is to understand sound doctrine that sometimes God uses tough times and painful circumstances, tragedy. Even the apostle Paul said to keep him from being uh, taken over by pride because he was writing scripture, that God allowed a messenger from Satan to torment him, to keep him grounded in humility and dependent on the grace of God. A messenger of the devil doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, and yet it was in the permissive will of God. When we understand these things, we just uh, don't get derailed so easily, and so I guess uh, Jesus is not responding yet, right, to this first part of the conversation. I imagine him just kind of nodding a little bit, like, is there more? Come on, tell me, anything else? Get it all out, okay? Okay. And they say, well, yeah, there is more. And then the second part of the conversation, which will guarantee them a verbal spanking. This is the part where they list all the reasons why they shouldn't doubt all the evidences for faith. Now, they're going to indict themselves. This is called self-incrimination. Right here, they're going to be outed uh, as culpable in this situation. And so here are all the reasons why we should keep the faith. So I'll list them down here. He says in verse 21b, on top of everything else, it's day number three. Now, why does he say that? Because the rumor is, and all the disciples have said, and Jesus' famous teaching is, on day three, he would rise from the dead. So he's telling Jesus to make matters more intense. It's the third day. It's Resurrection Sunday, and where is he? Jesus that's hilarious to be right there. I don't know how Jesus keeps from interrupting him right there. Maybe he's counting to three. You know, I, Jesus doesn't need to count to one Mississippi, two Mississippi like I do. But anyway, so it's the third day, Jesus. And in addition, check this out. Some of our women, not atheist women, not women from the bad part of town, not strangers that we don't know, women, but our wives, our sisters, our mothers who have seen Christ and yielded their lives, who love him. They're the ones who told us something amazing. These solid, trustworthy, devoted disciples of Jesus amazed us. Now, if they amazed them, that means they said something credible. And something dramatic. So it's something worth taking to heart, right? Because of who they are and what they're saying. And and they're admitting, we were amazed. We didn't believe them. But we were amazed. They said they went to the tomb and imagine this, the body's gone. Just kind of like, you know, he said it would be. And then they saw angels and they described them to us. And the angels had a message, he's alive. Then our companions, and you know who that is? It's Peter and John. We already know that. They went down and confirmed. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away, just like the ladies had said. And maybe Jesus was seeking, then you need to do some explaining right now. You need to explain to me now, after you finish this list, why is it you don't believe? You just told me you have every evidence you need it, And instead, at the end, they're gloomy, depressed, and hopeless, and mired in unbelief after rattling all of that off. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a great scene. Lucy is the one who's kind of uh, been let in on uh, Narnia, the kingdom of God. And so for the analogy, she kind of gets saved, right? And she's telling her unbelieving siblings all about the king and the kingdom and the white witch and all of this. And they think she's crazy, but she's relentless and she's passionate and she's pleading. And it becomes such a problem. They go, the siblings, go to the professor in the big mansion where they're staying and they tell him the problem, and he listens and he says, well, tell me about your sister. Uh, is she a liar? Well, no, she's, she's not a liar. Has she ever lied before? Not that we've ever known, no. Uh, is she known to make stories up and kind of live in kind of a fantasy world? No, not at all. Is she mentally unstable? No, we don't always get along, but she's not mentally unstable does she stand anything to gain by telling you this tremendous tale? No. Then why don't you believe her? And they're shocked, right? So really, I mean, it's common sense when former, and listen to me, if you're on the fence with your faith, when former atheists who hated God are now preaching the faith they tried to destroy when sexually immoral people suddenly are moral pillars of virtue? Preaching Jesus, preaching Jesus, and pleading for you to see what they see and to know who they know. Why not just believe them? And if you don't believe them, what about creation? Take a look around. Romans chapter one says, we're without excuse because creation just kind of outs it and says, there's a creator. If there's a masterpiece, there's an artist kind of thing. There's our conscience given to us by God as a gift to tell us when we sin that we're guilty and points us to him. There's the Bible, verifiable truth. There are names and dates and places, things you can check out to see if it's true or not, and prophecies, thousands of them. And there's the dramatic testimonies of the church. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There's a lot of reasons to believe. Come, Jesus says, to the waters and drink freely of the waters of life and live. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Time is short. Time is short. So uh, Jesus has heard about as much as he cares to hear here. And now he's we're gonna continue on and he's gonna bring the verbal smack down, as it were, in verses 25 through 27. Let's take a, a look at that. Verse 25. He says to them, how foolish you guys are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, 300 prophecies, have been spoken. Verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Do you guys read your Bible? It says it right there in your Bible. The Messiah will suffer and die and be raised. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, Moses penned through the power of the Holy Spirit, the first five books of the Bible. And so starting at Genesis and going all the way through, really, and the Jews call the Old Testament their Bible. They call it the Bible. He goes all the way through. He explains to them what was is, is said in the Bible concerning himself. There And so, yes, indeed. Now, uh, disciples are disciplined and schooled now. So it's interesting to me, by looking at this rebuke, that here's what it says. Unbelief is not as innocent as it appears to be. And yes, these are strong words, but with a kindly tone. Gentle Jesus is that way with his own. So time for Jesus to help get these guys or this couple back on track. And sometimes we need smelling salts. (laughs) They're a little, come on, you guys, you're being foolish. And he points out the problem. He corrects them. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, God corrects us because he loves us. Like any good father, he disciplines his children. And so... You know, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse one says to accept correction is to be wise. To reject it is to be stupid. The Bible's word for that. And so, yeah, I mean, to take what the spirit says to correct us and embrace it and make those course corrections is wisdom. How else would you ever grow and mature? It's hard. He doesn't say that we need to heed every uh, criticism or being nagged or, or unjustly or unrightly uh, corrected. But when correction is uh, constructive, uh, it's wise to receive it. And it seems like they will do that. And so they're being rebuked, listen, because they're, they're culpable for their doubting and their unbelief. In other words, they're deserving of blame or he wouldn't be correcting them. He's saying, listen, when Paul talks about Jews that reject the gospel, he says they refused to believe. In other words, to believe isn't about you know, intellectual facts. It's about the heart and a choice. And so Jesus is saying, you had some choices between hope and fear between doubt and faith, between the words of your women and the voices in the world. And you chose wrongly. And that's foolish. To disregard wisdom, that's foolish. The word means to neglect a truth that you're aware of. You know better, in other words, but you choose poorly anyhow. And you act irresponsible. That's what the word means. And how much more foolish is it if we act negligent or we disregard scripture uh, in the things concerning our souls and God that have eternal ramifications. And so Jesus is saying, this is serious stuff, Cleo. You've put yourself and people around you through unnecessary grief by your faithless panic. And during a crisis, instead of encouraging and building people up and being a catalyst of faith, your conversation is just like everybody else in the world, filled with fear and doubt and oh no's and unrest. Instead, you've perpetuated the problem. You haven't helped anybody uh, in that regard. Jesus would say, You're not gathering with me when you're like that, you're scattering. And so he points out their sluggish heart. I love this. It's not just about the intellect, as I said. Unbelief is, is a condition of the heart. Jesus' uh, revelation here. And so he's saying, you're dragging your heels spiritually. Knock that off. Uh, everyone thinks that faith is a problem in the head, so we increase the words. Uh, if it's a problem with the heart, once the words are enough, we can stop with the words and start uh, treating them kindly, maybe with love and prayer. And so I think that will be more effective uh, than trying to, to give them more information. And so the sinful nature just kind of lazy and preser- pre- prefers the easy way. Sliding downhill is easier than trudging uphill. And faith calls you upward to fight. And maybe that's why they're having a struggle with it. Faith calls for a fight to fight the good faith. And so maybe that's why we just take the easy out with fear. You don't have to work at all. You just let it have its way. Fears and doubts, you're not taking captive any thoughts. You're just running with it. And so I think that appeals to our lazy, sinful selves at time. And that's why we struggle with it. It's a lot easier just to complain about the most recent inconveniences uh, than to exercise self-control and contentment and find Bible verses and all of that. That's work, right? And So faith means work. And that's why uh, it's sometimes hard to come by. So time for a sermon. Christ is going to be the preacher and the title of his sermon is called Jesus in the Old Testament. And so as they're walking, he starts at Genesis and says, did you ever notice this verse or that verse? And so, oh, to be a fly buzzing around there to hear the son of God give a sermon on all the Old Testament passages that deal with him. So from Genesis, you know, he might have started with Genesis 3. Right there at the scene of the crime, the fall of man. He promises a virgin birth conqueror to come. Right there, opening chapters. The seed of the woman is the conception of the Holy Spirit. Without the help of a man, it's the seed of a woman that saves the world And so that would be starting with Moses. I don't know. He continued with Moses in Genesis 22, where he said, did you guys realize that Abraham, on the third day, (laughs) looks up and sees the place where he's supposed to offer up his one and only son on Mount Moriah, which is Mount Calvary. It is the same hill 2,000 years earlier God tells Abraham, I want to paint a picture of what's coming in 2,000 years with the Lamb of God. And so I don't know, did he mention again in Moses' writings there in Exodus 17, the rock that was struck, they're dying of thirst, they need water, they're in the wilderness. He says, strike the rock, and it'll bleed from its wounds, living water as it were, much like we see in first. Corinthians chapter 10 says that rock that got struck, that the water came out, that's a picture of Christ. And how about the bread that comes down to feed them in the wilderness, Exodus 16? They called it manna, which means what is it? (laughs) And it's bread from heaven. But in John chapter six, Jesus says, that's a picture of me. I'm the bread that came down from heaven that if you eat of this bread, you're gonna live Forever. And maybe he said, Guys, did you miss that Jonah? Jonah was down deep in the belly of the earth for how many days, guys? Three, right? And on the third day, what happened? He rose. He was resurrected to life. That's a picture of me. And maybe he went on to say, How about Joseph? Still in Genesis. (laughs) We haven't gotten out of Genesis. How about Joseph? His brothers hated him, his Jewish brothers, the nation, and through him, into a deep pit and left him there for dead and dipped his robe in blood. But he was raised up, resurrected, and then exalted to the highest place on earth. Not one person moved under the Pharaoh's command without Joseph's word. Sound familiar, guys? At the bottom of a a well, a pit, raised up to the highest place. That's Philippians chapter 2. All over it. And so we could go on for days, and you know I can, right? 300 prophecies in the Old Testament just like that. Where he'd be born, how he'd be born. The star that the wise men followed, it's all there. The slaughter of the babies, how he would die, that he would rise. How he'd be crucified between two thieves is written there. And how he'd be buried with in a rich man's tomb. Come on, there's 300 of them. And they bode their time really well listening to God talk about how he appears in the Old Testament scriptures. That's just amazing. And so time to move forward. We're closing in on the town They've put on their blinkers. It's time to exit to get to their house anyway. And so verses 28 through 32 now appear on your screen. Verse 28, as we continue, as they approach the village to which they were going. Now Jesus act as if he was going on farther, but they urged him strongly. Stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Now you see me, now you don't. Verse 32 they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Yes, hindsight, always. 2020. So now the disciples have been disciplined and they've been sufficiently schooled, and now it is time for truth to be revealed. And by the way, that's what happens, right? We get off track, we humble ourselves, we hear hear the correction. We go, he takes them to the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans chapter 10, and they're restored. And that will always be the case. You lose your way, that's the way back. And so now what's up with Jesus? Play acting. Like, hey, I've got people to see, places to go, like to stay with you, but I'm on my way this way. Well, it's quite remarkable and invaluable insight indeed kind of obvious verse 28 i think they've been in the classroom with christ and now when you've been in the classroom it's always you know time for a test and so here's the test the test is saying now how did you guys receive the correction how will you respond to what you just learned What I just showed you. Do you want more? Do you want more clarity? Do you want the continued fellowship? Or are you good? You had your fill enough already with the religion. Good night. Kind of thing he wants to know. He's asking the question, are you still going to act foolishly and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said? Show me. Show me you're interested in me. Invite me, uh, say something, you know? I'm not going where I'm not welcome. So he gives them this opportunity right here. And so as they take the exit to head out to their house on a little path, probably, he says, you know, I've got places to go, uh, you know? And they passed the test with flying colors. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon um, uh, talks about this passage. He said, it's a very strong word that's used. They constrained him. The words related to the same word Jesus used when he said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. This is not an casual invite like hey if you're not doing anything yeah if you want to stay no they held on to him they grabbed his hand they tugged on his clothing they asked him please don't leave us smart move Smart move. And now for the big reveal, verses 31 through 32. I mean, here's what they're saying. They're saying, are you kidding? It's supper time. And boy, we loved what you were saying. We want to hear more. Come on, you're eating with us tonight. Jesus loves that kind of thing. Verses 31 through 32. Interesting. Really, this revelation happens during a scene that brings our minds back to communion, you know? He's gonna break the bread and something happens at the table and everybody wants to know exactly what is it that opened their eyes? Well, one writer, Morrison, commentator, he said maybe it was, quote, his majestic hosting with a quiet air of divine Regalness. In other words, just his manner, the way he was going about things, the tone of his voice, the choice of his words. Or maybe it was the way in which he prayed over the meal. Or was it this when he broke the bread, he wrote, and handed the bread to them, they noticed something on his hands the nail scars for he retains them in his glorified body. The hands of the body that was broken, now handing them the bread from the bread of life. That's a powerful moment indeed. And so their eyes open and everything's clear. And then he disappears in verse 31. Of course, because he's like, you guys have been blessed right now with most of the world has to believe and doesn't get to see me at all. So I'm going to let you see me. And then now I want you to, hello, walk by faith like the rest of the world has to start doing right about now. And so he disappears from sight. And so uh, you'll recall, yes, that on the second Sunday night worship service, Uh, They are meeting, and Thomas missed the first one because he was so upset, and he said, unless I see him with my own eyes and touch those uh, scars with my own hands, I am not going to believe. And so the, uh, the second service comes on that Sunday, and Thomas shows up, and so does Jesus, and says, Thomas, touch. Stop doubting. Believe. Put your finger here, come on. And Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. In other words, he's saying that all of us who have not seen or touched or handled the word of life, as 1 John chapter 1 put it, we are more commended than they. Because they got to see and hear with their, with their natural ears and touch the incarnation of God himself. How blessed, he says. But how much more blessed for those who have to live like they lived, only we've never seen a thing. He says that's commendable and blessed. And there's a reward for doing that kind of thing. And so we're winding down now. <clears throat> Here's the pattern to note if the crisis is causing panic instead of the Christ causing peace. Number one, pay attention to your conversations when you're walking in your life. Just pay attention. What are the things coming out of your mouth? So just uh, as the word in the, when he says, what are you discussing? It means to toss back and forth violently. Is it that kind of chaos or is it Peace and truth and scriptures. Pay attention to that. And when necessary, when you get off track, number two, receive his correction and let the Holy Spirit take you to the word and remind you of everything Jesus has ever taught. That's his uh, job. That's one of the, his ministries to the church. And then make the necessary uh, course uh, corrections. How about opening the Bible and saying, uh, my faith is, is failing, Teach me, show me something, and then invite him, draw near to him. He says, for those who draw near to him, God draws near to them. And so invite him, abide with him, and he will come in and eat with you and you with him, Revelation chapter three, and your eyes will be open and your heart will burn. What was it burning with love? Love for God and hope and excitement, right? And so your doubts will give way to faith. A few happy verses to close our time together here. Uh, 33 through 35, and then we're done. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11, minus Judas, of course, and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen. And he has appeared to Simon. Notice, it's not them who's telling the story. When they walk through the door, the disciples in the upper room, so they hightail it back, the seven miles to Jerusalem. They go beeline it to the upper room where the 11 are, among others, right? And before they get to say anything, the disciples say, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Peter. And then the two told them on top of all of their stories what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And so the lights have come on thanks to PG&E. Powerful, gracious, eternal God. I throw that in for free just like old times, my friends. And so the joy is restored. It's our last point. Just a couple things to say Time to get back in the game for these two, so they do. They run back those seven miles. You know, one writer pointed out, when God does a work in your heart, there's the irresistible urge to share it with others to bring joy and encouragement and inspiration. And that's the kind of thing we want. We don't want fear and panic and doubts and insecurity to fill our heart and then go with that message We want the message that brings life and hope and calm and rest and nearness to Christ. And so they bust open the doors and they're like, yeah, but they're shouted down. They kind of steal their thunder and everybody's telling them, hey, look, it's true. Because Jesus had had a talk now with Peter. So Peter's telling... Uh, everybody the story. And then they say in verse 5, yeah, us too. Let us tell you the story. And then I'm sure they're saying, you guys, you won't believe this. But Jesus was standing there asking us, you know, what's going on? And we're telling him everything. And, uh, you know, I just can imagine, you know, it was kind of funny, kind of (laughs) not. And uh, yeah, so kind of reminds us as We'd come together and share our encounters. Don't we come together and say, oh, I can't believe I said this to the Lord. What was I thinking? Or I can't believe I was feeling these things. Or how God corrects and teaches and opens our eyes and rekindles our hearts, puts the flame back in. And when he works in our hearts, we come together, even in small groups, even on Facebook. It'll do in a pinch. But we're looking forward to when we can do as God has commanded to forsake not the gathering together physically. So we can build up one another's faith with these kinds of stories and sing for joy. As you know, those worship songs were, were filling and echoing out from the upper rooms. So I have, in closing, just think had they not invited Jesus to their home. If they just said, yeah, whatever, you know, they're thinking they're hungry and they're tired and they don't want to hear any more Bible stories, you know, how much poorer their lives and ours because we wouldn't have this passage. That's really uh, something to think about. How about you? Panicked by the pandemic or enjoying peace from our Savior? You being led by the Good Shepherd to green, rich fields where you can lie down, take a walk with him besides quiet waters. Or are you all in a fuss and all bundled up with fears and struggles and alarms and all of that? Do not let Jesus pass you by. He gives us a choice whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, do not let Jesus pass by, but make the most of every opportunity to invite him to be near to you, and you will be blessed. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this journey to Emmaus and all the ways we are so much like these two disciples. God, forgive us. Here we are being tested. It's so So obviously a trial. That's why it's called a trial. <laughs> You're testing us. And Lord, we don't want to be found failing. We want to be found passing the test by encouraging our faith, doing the things that build up our faith in you, reading the scriptures, Believing, not being slow and sluggish of heart to believe, but quick and fast, obedient, so we can be effective and productive for you and enjoy your peace and be a catalyst to others. Everybody hurting and scared and freaked out. The people of God, God, we are the people of God. (laughs) Help us to be a light to the same power, Lord, that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us. We must take hold of that truth and shine forth brightly in this world to bring hope that others might see that light and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.